Hi, this is Mimi, and welcome to my podcast, The Lovely Becoming. Today's guest is Rachel Sellers, who is a practicing therapist located in the Nashville area. Rachel and I connected through Instagram, as with many of my guests, and I'm so excited to have her on. Hi, Rachel. Hi. Um, tell us about yourself. What do you do? What do you love? Oh, it's so good to be here. Thanks for having me, first of all. Um, what do I do? What do I love? Um, I'm a therapist. I am also um, a book nerd, and I love sleeping in more than, like, anything in the world. Um, <laughs> I am, like, such a night owl and um, have a hard time waking up in the morning sometimes. Um, so that's a fun fact about me. I love that. Yeah. Um, so let's dive right into the deep questions. Um, starting with what is trauma? Um, I think a lot of people throw that term around and I'm curious as a broader definition. Yeah, it's such a great question. Um, I think that we as a culture kind of tend to have a very narrow minded view of what trauma is and what we know is that trauma, it can be an event, right? It can be mm -hmm. an event or an experience that overwhelms the body, overwhelms the central nervous system. So things like natural disasters, things like abuse, sexual assault. Um, we have all experienced a lot of collective trauma um, in the year of 2020 with a <laughs> global pandemic and, um, you know, a pretty polarized election too. So, um, Trauma can definitely be a, an event, but it's also so much more than that. And that's where I really kind of want to like kind of broaden, I think, just our culture's understanding that trauma is not just an event. It's also an embodied response, and it's something that's created. So trauma is created and it's stored in the body and the brain after an overwhelming event or experience. Wow. What a beautiful definition. Um, thank you so much for that. And yeah, kind of tying it into the theme of the podcast with eating disorders, um, what role does trauma play in eating disorder recovery? Yeah, so that's such a, such a great question. So um, if, if trauma is what's created, right, it's, it's that response, um, then we get to um, – we get to ask, okay, so how is that response, how is that embodied response playing out in those who are struggling with eating disorders? Um, and the big link there, um, I think, is that we are, we move, there's a movement from regulation to dysregulation. Um, and mm -hmm. because trauma causes dysregulation in the body, um, we are constantly looking for ways to bring the body back into a state of homeostasis. And so eat, the eating disorder can become a coping skill for shifting the body back into that feeling of homeostasis and equilibrium as a way of dealing with some of the undischarged traumatic stress. Does that make sense? Mm -hmm. Yes. Yes. That's excellent. I think um, trauma definitely, I've heard a lot of pushback sometimes on treatment centers, not addressing trauma um, and how it can often be underlying and, and lead to the eating disorder as coping um, for that trauma, for sure. Yeah. Yeah. And so often, oftentimes what we're seeing um, is that the eating disorder functions as an inefficient regulation or coping strategy, right? So what mm -hmm. I need to cope are things like strong social relationships, emotion regulation skills, grounding and anchoring skills, 
but I don't necessarily, as a person who's struggling, have those skills. I haven't learned them. So instead, what I'm doing is is turning to food as an emotion regulation um, mechanism. Mm-hmm. Interesting. Um, kind of jumping around a little. I know it's a little disjointed, but I, I just have so many questions. Yeah, no, that's you. great. <laughs> um, I've heard about this polyvagal theory. Um, and kind of tied to trauma a lot. Whenever I hear trauma, I often hear the polyvagal theory and I have no idea what that means. (laughs) Um, (laughs) So if you could explain it to our listeners um, and why it's important to know about, that would be great. Uh, I would love to. So um, I really, you know, I first started learning about the polyvagal theory in my first semester of grad school. It wasn't necessarily taught to me um, in the curriculum because it's more of a newer, um, it's, it's new and and not necessarily considered quote unquote mainstream yet. But the minute I learned about it, it was like everything that I had like seen in others and noticed about myself. It was like, Oh my gosh, this is the human experience. Like it, it, something just totally shifted to me for me. And, um, really has kind of become the paradigm of how I understand humanity and people. Um, so it is something that I love and I love to teach on. Um, so polyvagal theory is, it is boiled down in a nutshell, it is the science of safety. So what the polyvagal theory says is that our bodies are always scanning for either safety or danger. And then everything inside of my body is different depending on how safe I feel. Um, this mm-hmm. is biological. We, as you know, humans, were designed to survive and we want to survive. Um, and so we are kind of masters. Our bodies have been designed in a way where we are, are really good at sensing danger, things that could be a threat to our safety. So what the polyvagal theory describes essentially is three different nervous system responses. Um, One of those having to do with our sympathetic nervous system, which is our fight or flight, and the other two having to do with two different branches of the parasympathetic nervous system. So I'm going to go through these three systems um, and kind of explain them as succinctly as I can. Is that cool? (laughs) Yes, I would love that. Okay. So... we have what's called our social response. And this is um, our social engagement system. It's also called the ventral vagal complex. Um, The system is activated or responds when the body feels safe. When I um, sense safety in, in my environment, it allows me from a neurobiological level, it allows me to be connected in social relationships. It allows me to feel grounded. Um, It allows me to feel Um, in my body, I'm present, focused, calm, compassionate. And this system is really unique to mammals. Um, and, and I love, you know, we are, we need people Mm -hmm. for survival. Um, attachment theory supports that. Um, so much of what we know is how crucial relationships are. Um, and when our body responds in this way, so let's say you're with a friend who you feel really safe with, right? Um, Mm -hmm there are certain things that are going on in the body. Um, There's increased digestion. There's an increased immune response. There's oxytocin released, which is that feel-good neurotransmitter that's involved with um, the social bonds and connection. So this is like the system and the response that we 
want activated more times than not, right? But we also have two other different responses that are activated when our body perceives a threat, okay? So one of those is your sympathetic fight or flight, okay? So this system is activated when your body um, responds to a sense of danger, the body immediately mobilizes, it goes into survival mode. Um, I always say like, this is the system that's activated. Um, a, a lot of literature uses kind of the bear in the woods met metaphor, um, <laughs> which I think is kind of stereotypic. I use this as like, I'm in my house, I'm calm, I'm, I'm working. And all of a sudden, like something like a plate drops. Um, and my, what happens, my blood pressure, my heart rate immediately spikes, adrenaline and cortisol starts running through my body. And I I, you know, I get that jumpy sense. And even though in my rational brain, I know, oh, that was just a plate that dropped. I'm fine. Um, I'm safe. My body doesn't necessarily know that. It's, it is mm -hmm. responding automatically to something that could be a threat, like a loud noise. A second system, though, that's also um, can be activated when our body perceives um, threat is the parasympathetic freeze response. And that's when our dorsal vagal system is activated. So this one is kind of like our playing dead or playing possum system. Um, <laughs> so if by, you know, if that sympathetic energy, that fight or flight doesn't work, it doesn't make the threat go away, then what happens um, is that we start to shut down. And, um, and this is kind of where depression lives. Um, we see a decreased heart rate and, and blood pressure. It's hard to be connected in social relationships because I'm just so dissociated and disconnected from my body. And it is not a conscious choice I'm making with my really smart, rational prefrontal cortex. It is a very primitive response. It's my body's way of reacting to feeling unsafe. Mm. Wow. I can really see like an archetypal narrative of just kind of, you know, you either feel safe or you experience some sort of danger and, and the responses look different. Mm -hmm. Um, mm -hmm. if, if that's what I'm hearing. Yeah. Yeah. And I think that, um, as far as, you know, how this relates to trauma work, I think what the polyvagal theory postulates is that, um, our, our bodies are, are the first line of defense and our, conscious decision-making brain is often offline and it cannot be recruited in those moments um, of, mm -hmm. of when the body, um, the word is neuroseps. It's kind of that word for senses. Um, neuroseps danger. Um, what I think this does as regards to like trauma treatment is it allows this shift from victim to survivor. Because what the polyvagal theory says is that our bodies are on our sides. They are before our like prefrontal cortex, rational, logical brains can even have, a, you know, a second to speak into a situation. Our bodies are there and they are responding to keep us safe. And so when we're working with, um, let's say, you know, an abuse survivor who is dealing with you know, extreme dissociation and depression and shutdown, um, we get to, to change the narrative to your body was doing exactly what it was supposed to do for you to survive. And it doesn't mean mm -hmm. that you did anything wrong. Um, 
it, it kind of shifts that blame and and it doesn't mean that there's not a responsibility to healing but what it does do is it i think it just shows human resiliency and our amazing way that our bodies are are on our side and they're constantly helping us to survive really difficult situations wow yeah it sounds like um reconnecting with our bodies and learning to trust them again really ties into this work um so that we're able to recognize when our bodies speak before our conscious Mm -hmm. minds and making sure that we have that good connection so we can kind of facilitate some sort of integration. Yeah. Yeah. And how crucial is that to eating disorder treatment, right? Um, Yeah. So much of people who are struggling with eating disorders are kind of like constantly living in this sympathetic fight or flight energy or in this parasympathetic kind of shutdown energy and feeling really disconnected from their hunger and their fullness cues. And so I think where that, you know, the integration with polyvagal theory and and eating disorder treatment is how are we helping clients activate um, and and move into that that social engagement system and that social response in order to move away from using eating disorder behaviors as a means of regulation and turning to um, relationships and um, emotional regulation and the feeling grounded in your body. And when we activate that system and experience regulation, um, I think that we will start to see a decrease in, um, in some eating disorder behaviors. Hmm. And you mentioned a little bit about the shutdown mm-hmm. um, from the parasympathetic nervous yeah. system, I think. And uh, I'm curious, how do you, what's the way out of that? How do we get out of that? That's such a great question. And I have learned so much about this from um, a woman named Deb Dana. And she, she wrote this book called The Polyvagal Theory in Therapy. And I love Mm -hmm. it so much because um, Dr. Porges, who is the inventor of polyvagal theory, he is a a medical doctor. And sometimes as therapists, um, you know, or just normal people. Um, I don't always, like, I can't always read that well and understand it. Um, yeah. yeah, Dana is a therapist. She's a, a social worker. And she wrote a book that is geared towards how to integrate this um, with within the therapy setting. And it's brilliant. Um, and something that she teaches is this polyvagal ladder. So I want you to envision, um, listeners, envision a ladder, okay? Um, And on the very tippy top of your ladder is this social engagement system, the system that's activated when you feel safe. Um, One rung down the ladder is your sympathetic system, that fight or flight energy. And then another rung down the ladder is that dorsal vagal shutdown, okay? So if we're all the way at the bottom of the ladder, the question you just ask is, how do I get back to the top, right? How do I move into social mm-hmm. relationships? And um, part of that is moving through the sympathetic fight or flight energy and then moving back up to the ventral vagal. So it's in a hierarchical kind of way. Um, and so part of kind of moving through that, that disconnect and the, that depressive kind of state is starting to recruit some of that fight or flight energy, which seems kind of strange. Um, But um, what she teaches is that we have to help 
those clients and and I say even myself, right? Because I have moments too. I am I am in my dorsal vagal system throughout the day, just like anybody. We we're all, all you know, we're all kind of oscillating through these states. Um when I start to feel kind of this like shutdown, you know, I I get up and I'll like play a song, like a jam, and I'll dance in my room while no one's watching and start to move through, (laughs) like move that energy through my body and kind of, you know, get my heart rate up, um, kind of just start to kind of mobilize that energy. Um, and then that allows me to be able to connect in social relationships again. Um, so it's, it's this movement through sympathetic into, um, into ventral. That is kind of the the direction that we want to go. Um, Deb Dana talks about it in terms of like moving up and down the ladder. Mm. I like that there's, you know, an oscillation between the different rungs of the ladder and it's not just either safety or not safety kind of thing. Mm-hmm. Um, I really appreciate that. Yeah. Um, you have so much wisdom to share and I'm so grateful. Uh, thank um, you. Yeah, I, I'm so inspired and I'm curious. Um, what made you decide to become a therapist and specialize in trauma and eating disorders? So this is actually a second career for me. Um, I, yeah. So a lot of people don't know that. Um, I used to be a teacher. Um, I taught elementary school for three years and, um, worked with a lot of traumatized kids. Um, I started Mm -hmm. reading a lot about childhood trauma, even in my first year of teaching, um, and to be completely honest, um, I realized how much more stimulating that was to me than writing lesson plans. Mm-hmm. <laughs> um, if I'm being really honest, I think I kind of knew that this career shift was coming, like that second year of teaching. Um, but pretty early on, just really began, began abdicating for my students to receive mental health services. Um, I got really frustrated by the labels that were really thrown out, um, specifically, you know, this kid is just oppositional or this kid needs a, mm-hmm. a behavior plan or, or, okay, maybe you do need a behavior pr- plan, but maybe you're not oppositional. Maybe you're hurting and there's so much going on mm-hmm. below what we can see. And, um, you know, the more and more, I, you know, really started abdicating for for these services and, and reading about what was really going on for my kids and learning about their histories and learning about their, their families um, and the things that they would go home to. I, I, I quickly knew, um, you know, I'm in the wrong, I'm in the wrong job. Um, and really just, and, and I, I had a, an amazing support system at my school and I, you know, my principal even was like, Rachel, go back to school. Like you, you, you need to do this. Um, so I felt really supported in that way. Um, and then as far as, um, you know, kind of the, the puzzle piece of, of eating disorders, um, at that point, I guess that was 2016. Um, I had been, um, in full recovery from my eating disorder, um, for about four years and, was becoming so much more passionate about eating disorder awareness and recovery. Um, I think I just was at, it's, it's hard to describe sometimes, but I think I was just at a place in my recovery where, where I could really, I really started to see, um, and being in a work environment too, like I really started to see the diet culture messages and, um, 
and the way that um, being hard on your body and being critical of your body and shaming your body was like uh, like normal um, in in <laughs> social circles. And I just was like, whoa. Um, and it was really around that time too that I, I really started understanding and learning about diet culture and, and some of these things that um, I think really helped me kind of just – I don't know, understand, um, how needed and necessary, um, supporting all people, but specifically supporting women. And, and that really became something I I wanted to do and was passionate about. Yeah, that's awesome. I think recovered clinicians Mm -hmm. are some of the best and they have that empathy and that lived experience. Mm -hmm. That's so crucial Mm -hmm. to this. Um, Talk to me a little bit about anti-diet work. Um, I think some people think that diets are outdated and it's it's not necessary to think about anti-diet. But what about lifestyle changes and things like oh, that? Oh, girl. Girl. The, <laughs> the whole lifestyle change. I'm like, what do you mean by lifestyle change? Like, define that for <laughs> me, please. Um, because if the emphasis yes. is still on weight loss or body modification, then, girl, it's still a diet. Like, I can't, I can't, I can I can have so much empathy. Um, I can. And I'm also like, we got to speak truth to this stuff, right? Um, yeah. Yeah. I mean, I, you know, the, the literature is clear, right? Like the idealization, idealization, that's such a hard word to say, um, of, of thinness okay. and <laughs> fitness is, is one of the best known environmental contributors to eating disorders. And I work with a lot of adolescents. Um, I love like the 12 to 18 year olds are like my favorite population to work with. And dieting is the most salient predictor of eating disorders in adolescents. And I hear it. I see it week after week in my office um, about the messages that these teenagers are being fed um, and you know, these 13 year olds going on diets and it breaks my heart and it's so unnecessary. (laughs) It's so unnecessary. So I think that, um, anti-diet work is so important. Um, it is so important. And I think that for me, anti-diet work is so much about, um, it's, it's not necessarily, you know, this energy of like, I just want to bash on the diet. Um, I do want to do that. (laughs) And, I want to, um, I want to empower women to trust their own bodies and to trust the wisdom that is inside of me and you when we learn to attune to it. And that for me is kind of the hallmark of, of anti-diet work is saying, let's stop turning outward to all of these things that you're being sold and marketed as something you need. And let's start to actually turn inward and look at what you have and the endless resources that are innate in you. Wow. Yes. Yes to all the things. I think you're so right that, that we really need to learn how to trust our bodies. And it really ties back to the trauma piece and the polyvagal theory and those um, innate kind of like yes. building structures and yes. cues that we have. It feels so integrated. Yeah. And if I'm going to trust my body, it means that I have to feel safe. And I think that that is such an important Mm. piece of, you know, where trauma work and polyvagal kind of plays a part in this um, is 
if I do not feel safe in my body because I'm constantly reliving traumatic memories and I am constantly on guard and on defense, um, then I can't trust my body. Like mm-hmm. I, I can't feel safe in my body. And so I think that safety embodied safety is a prerequisite to, um, to self-trust. Wow. That's so good. Um, it's funny cause I, or not funny, but, um, <laughs> I'm often thinking about when I'm recording these interviews, like little snippets that I want to share and I kind of just want to share the whole thing. You're so, so sweet. Well, that's how I um, feel every time you post on Instagram or I hear you speak. Um, oh. so right back at you. Thank you. Um, I appreciate that. And, and thinking too, um, I've heard a little bit about adverse childhood experiences and um, I'm wondering what's there to know about them for the listeners? Such a great question. Um, you know, I talked about how when I first learned about polyvagal theory, it was like, you know, a mind blown experience. Um, that's how I feel when I first started learning about ACEs and the ACEs study. Um, so ACE stands for adverse childhood experience. Um, and there was this groundbreaking study that was done by um, Filetti and Onda. And basically they, um, they said, we want to learn more about the biological link between adverse childhood experiences and health outcomes. So it was interesting because they were actually more curious kind of on the physical health realm. Um, but that's important. Um, and basically what, you know, what they, <laughs> they looked at is they looked at these, um, this, this category, these certain adverse childhood experiences. Um, and I'll go ahead and name them because I think it's important. So the ACEs that they looked at, they looked at um, emotional abuse, physical abuse, sexual abuse, physical neglect, emotional neglect, um, substance abuse in the household, mental illness in the household, um, a mother who is treated violently, divorce or parental separation, and criminal behavior in the household. And so they wanted to look at what are the impacts of these experiences, these traumas, um, or adverse childhood experiences on health outcomes. And what they found mm-hmm. was um, disturbing and should wake us all up <laughs> to the, the um, pervasive yes. impacts of childhood trauma. Um, some of the things that they found, um, I mean, the first thing is that they found that ACEs were incredibly common, 67% of their sample, which their sample size was over 17,000, which in research world, that's a huge sample size, right? Which increases our yes. external validity, which basically just says, um, you know, that we can generalize these findings that because the sample size is so big. Um, 67% of the sample had one ACE. Um, And then they also found that the higher the person's ACE score, the greater the risk to his or her health. They found that a person with four or more ACEs was twice as likely to develop heart disease and cancer as a person with zero ACEs. Mm -hmm. And they found that a person with an ACE score of seven or more has triple the lifetime odds of getting lung cancer or having heart disease. So the reason that this study was so groundbreaking is because, you know, often people think if I'm in, if I'm exposed to these adverse child experiences, I'm exposed to these traumas early in life, then I'm going to turn to things like smoking, drinking, you know, quote unquote, all those bad in quotes, um, uh, coping mechanisms, right. Um, 
I'm going to engage in these mm-hmm. risky behaviors to deal with my trauma. Um, and then what, you know, the science has said is like, it's those risky behaviors that are causing the illnesses, right? Um, but what this study found mm-hmm. was that even if you don't engage in these risky behaviors as a means of coping with your trauma, you are still more likely to get sick mentally and physically. Mm-hmm. Interesting. So it's isolated for yes. confounding factors. Um, just the trauma alone causes yes. negative health outcomes. And, and there, you know, there's a wow. lot of talk around kind of, uh, you know, the study was great because it revealed that this is a huge problem. Um, like, I really believe that childhood trauma is the number one threat to public health. Um, but it didn't necessarily Mm -hmm. explain kind of the how and that's still being, um, studied, but a big part of that people are looking at epigenetics, um, and the way that our environment and our Mm -hmm. genes kind of play together, um, to cause, um, adverse health effects. Um, but I mean, it's just, it's really eye opening, And I think that, um, we marginalize the impact of trauma because we don't want to see it. Um, Cause it's, mm. it's emotional. It's scary stuff. Like to think that if I'm exposed to these things in childhood, then I am, could have poor health outcomes. Like that's scary. That's hard to look at. Um, and I think yeah. we, ha- but we have to start to look at it and we have to start to, to, to stop stigmatizing trauma um, because it is all around us. And I think we have to start to look at it. Yeah, definitely. I'm thinking about um, how those early experiences are really important because they shape, they impact us um, when we're developing, um, our brains are developing, our bodies are developing. And, and when there's interruptions to those processes mm-hmm. through trauma, those can be really important mm-hmm. and have long lasting effects because we're being shaped, you know, yep. by those early experiences. Yeah. Wow. Um, talk to me about wholehearted living. What is this? Uh, and what does it look like? So for this you? is a, um, you know, wholehearted living was a mantra that I really um, developed when I was in recovery. Um, I, you know, I tell people that um, Brene Brown's book, the gifts of imperfection, um, was truly <laughs> that book had the most profound impact on me in recovery. Um, not the, not the books that were, you know, necessarily ED focused or, or geared that book mm-hmm. broke me down and built me up. Um, and, and wow. when I was probably in like the hardest kind of part of my own recovery, um, I read that book and I, it shifted my, my paradigm. So, for me, um, it became what I was going to continue to live into um, for the rest of my life and what I was committing to. Um, and Brene Brown defines wholehearted living as um, engaging in our lives from a place of worthiness. Um, and it's knowing that um, her quote is, is no matter what gets done or, you know, what is left undone at the end of the day, it's going to bed knowing that I am still worthy. It's waking up in the morning knowing that I am still worthy. Um, and I think, you know, mm-hmm. for so many people struggling with eating disorders, um, and it was certainly true for me, 
I had lost touch with that inherent sense of worthiness. I thought that I needed to look a certain way to be worthy. And, um, and that is, it's sinking sand. It doesn't, it doesn't fulfill, it doesn't live up to what it promises. And so for me, the shift was, um, I no longer have to achieve a felt sense of worthiness. Worthiness is nothing to be achieved. It is nothing to be earned. Wholehearted living is about living into my innate worthiness that is woven into the fabric of who I am and who everyone is because they're a human on this planet. Wow. Yes. I love that concept of inherent worth where we get to wake up and go to bed knowing that, like you said, whatever, um, we do or don't get done. Like Brene talks about, Mm -hmm. we're still okay. And we're still worthy of good things. And, Mm -hmm. um, I love that. Wow. Rachel, I am so grateful. Um, on a lighter note, (laughs) um, what is your favorite or favorite? Oh, I love it. Plural. Mm, the best question. Um, <laughs> um, it's, it's ice cream. It has been since I was a little girl. Um, mm. Some things never change. Um, but it's, it's yes. ice cream. I, I laugh because a couple nights ago, my husband and I were sitting just kind of hanging out. And um, I got an email from Jenny's Ice Cream that their holiday flavors were about <gasps> to be released. And, um, it brought me just an immense amount of joy. Um, so I'm, I'm very excited for that and it's just my favorite. If we're thinking like (laughs) just general ice cream category, you know, all brands included here, um, mint chocolate chip is like my favorite. Um, if we're, if we're Mm -hmm. looking, you know, at Jenny's ice cream, (laughs) (laughs) that feels important. Um, the, Salted yeah. caramel is is divine, and then also they have a flavor called Texas sheet cake. That is also just yes, is pretty remarkable. Wow, I love Jenny's. I'm so thrilled. I was telling Rachel before that I'll be in Nashville soon, and I just can't yes. wait to go into a real yes. Jenny's shop. You have to let me know. <laughs> we can go together. Yes, I would love. Yes, that. please. I was about to say. <laughs> Um, I'm so excited. And, uh, my last question, um, is a little bit open-ended, but I'm wondering, um, in the theme of the lovely becoming, how are you becoming? I love love that question. And I love the, the word, um, I love that word and question. How are you becoming? It's important. Um, I recently turned 30. I turned 30 last week. Yes. Um, which was, you know, I thought it was going to be more frightening than it was. I, I, I'm kind of excited. I think that my thirties are going to be good. Um, but part of how I am becoming is surrendering timelines. Um, there's all these cultural kind of narratives around where you quote unquote should be, um, in your career, in your relationships, in, whether you own a home or not, um, just really just kind of silly when you think about it, um, kind of expectations for where you should be in life by a certain age. And um, I am becoming by unlearning them and being okay mm-hmm. with being where I am um, and surrendering this concept of needing to be somewhere by a certain age. Um, and, and, really just 
working on being just totally content and at peace with where I am. Um, yeah. Mm-hmm. Hmm. Wow. That's awesome. I really love that answer. And I think we're all becoming yes. um, over time and yeah, I'm really grateful 